Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Ben Stewart doesn't need much introduction here, uh, especially if you've been around for a while. He started out in ministry here as our youth pastor 18 years ago, and it's always a treat when he's back to preach God's word to us. He continues the series he started last week, which is an awesome series and an awesome installment. Let's welcome Ben as he comes to bring God's word to us now. All right. Well, howdy. howdy. Good to see you guys. If you have a Bible, we are in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, I want to read a couple verses to you and then we'll jump in. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's people who are willing to give you one if you raise a hand. Um, or you can just listen along because I want to read to you 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, we'll pray and jump in. And uh, Man, 18 years ago, that is pretty crazy to think. I started ministry as a baby, but uh, <laughs> here we are. Unreal, but uh, awesome to be here. Uh, I said it last week, I'll say it again. I love this church. I love Ken Werlein and uh, love his leadership. have learned so much from him, and it's always a joy for my wife and I to be here. Uh, and this is a fun place to be. Ken's going to talk about sex. I'm talking about the end of the world. I mean, come on. Uh, this place is crazy. So... 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, uh, says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Uh, let me pray for us. Well, Father, I just want to pray that that last verse would come true, uh, that these words would encourage us. They would sow courage into our hearts as we think about the end, our end, uh, the impending death of, of those we love, and, and, and the end of all things, that this is all going to terminate at some point. And so, God, as we talk about what is historically not the most upbeat of circumstances, I pray, God, that we would talk about it in a way that your word commands us to, in a way that fuses into our hearts courage and comfort. And so I pray, God, we'd walk out of here with greater confidence and greater comfort as a result of contemplating the end of our days. And uh, Lord, we ask for your grace. And so I just want to invite you guys, if you're willing, to take a minute and you ask him. Say, Lord, please teach me something from your word today. Uh, and then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't think there's many things in life worse than the 400-yard dash. 
Uh, we used to have to run them in high school, and just frankly, I don't even know why they call it a dash, because for me, I can dash for maybe 100 yards, but the rest of that 300 was more of just an exercise in survival. It's just a horrible run. And I remember when I was in football, they would make us do them over and over again. And it was, it was uh, awful. I remember for me, like I would get to that last hundred yards and literally parts of my body would start shutting down. Like I couldn't feel my nose. Like my fingers would go numb. It was like the little guys inside of me were like, divert all power from the nose. He needs them in the legs, right? Just trying to keep me going. Cause it was such an awful race and uh, we would have to do it. And the coaches would have us out there running over and over again until the point that we almost were breaking physically. Uh, and we would be in that moment where, you know, you're leaning over and doing that thing where you're trying not to throw up, but you're just spitting a lot. You know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, we're all doing it. And the coaches would get us to that moment where we were about to break, not just physically, but emotionally. We're like, we can't handle another 400, you know? And uh, always in that moment, our coach would stop us, Coach Davis. And he would say, circle up, men. And he'd say, men, I know you're tired. Men, I know this is rough, I've been there. And start to talk about the difficulty we were in the midst of and acknowledge that it was difficult. He said, but man, I wanna tell you about something. There's going to be a moment we're going to be out there on the field and it'll be the fourth quarter. And the other team's going to be tired and you're going to have another gear. And he started to talk about being in a football game. And he would start talking about being in that moment where we were there at the end of the game, the critical moments, and we had something to offer in those critical moments. And then he would go past it and talk about us crossing over the goal line, winning that final touchdown, winning the game, seeing the clock tick down and our score high, feeling that victory of we all were a part of something together. The sweetness of victory we'll enjoy as a team. And you know, every coach is supposed to give speeches like that, but with Coach Davis, I mean, you could see it. It was so vivid. And as he described that glorious end, something happened to us in the middle of that track. That it's not that we stopped thinking about our pain, but we started to realize this moment was leading us into that moment. And in that moment, I remember he would always get us to line up on the line and something crazy would happen. We would all race up to the line. And then he would yell, go, and we would scream, which he didn't tell us to do. He would just say, go. We were like, ah! right, and just run and usually get our fastest times, which was crazy but it was this amazing phenomena that he would put us through on a regular basis. A contemplation of the end completely altered the way we lived. And so we've been in this series about death. And let me tell you something, you really want to kill a conversation, bring up the subject of death. I mean, for me all week, people are like, hey, I heard you're preaching in Houston. What were you talking about? And I'm like, death, conversation over. And then I'd be like, so how are you doing? You know, uh, because there was nowhere else to take that. When people don't like to talk about death, people avoid the topic of death. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to contemplate it. And yet it's coming for all of us. The end is coming for each one of us. And what you see in the Bible is a contemplation of the end need not be a source of despair. Actually, it can become a source of hope. And so as we began to talk about it, many of you, it stirred up those questions. What is going to happen to me when I die? Or you started thinking about loved ones. Where are they? Where is the loved one I've lost? What's happening to them right now? Are they asleep? Are they awake? Are they conscious? Where are they? What's happening with them? The number one question we got after last week's sermon was, where are they? What's happening with my loved ones who are gone? My brother and I were cleaning out my dad's house just a few days ago. My dad passed away about three weeks ago. And my brother drove up in the truck yesterday and was like, well, I got dad in the back of the truck. 
He had gone by the funeral home. My dad had asked to be cremated and he had his ashes in a box back there. But he didn't say, I've got his ashes in a box. He's like, dad's in the back of the truck. I'm like, okay. And some of you say, is he? Or is he somewhere else? Or is, are both true? What, what's happening? And questions come up around it. And here's the good news is these need not lead to despair. But rather in verse 13, Paul, the apostle, is talking to his people, the Thessalonians, and they have questions about death because they've lost some people. And he tells them in verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. Don't settle for ignorance. Don't settle to not think about it. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about it. I want you to press in and know about this. Think about this. Why? Because there's a result that comes from it. This information is going to change your affections. It will change your emotions. It will make you different than everyone else in your neighborhood. Because everyone else, when they contemplate death, they grieve, but their grief is without hope. But the Christian, when we grieve, our grief is shot through with hope. One of the main reasons Christianity grew so rapidly in the early days was because of the confidence Christians held as they faced their impending death. It confused the ancient world to see such confidence and joy in the face of their end. And it enthralled them. It drew them. What do you have? We have hope, which is not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation. We know death's not the end for us. And so you go, what's the difference? What, what contemplating the end gave the Christian hope? Is it the word asleep? Some people say that. Well, you know, because people that didn't know Jesus died, but Christians just sleep. That's what the word is. But that's not really what Paul is getting at here because in the ancient world, the word sleep was used as a kind of imagery for death by Christians, non-Christians all over the culture. People talked about that. It's not this idea of, oh, our loved ones are sleeping that would give us hope. What's uniquely Christian is that the Christian had a version of it where we sleep and then wake up. That's the part that was different. Because in the ancient world, they would call death sleep, but they said that sleep was the end. Theocritus said hope is for the living, the dead are without hope. Catullus says the sun will set and rise again. But when our brief life light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. And so they grieved and said, when night comes, this sleep is all that's left. The Christian says, no, we sleep, but we rise, right? For the Christian, death is not the end. What was our enemy last week now becomes our portal into more life that the Christian sees life beyond the grave. And you go, well, how do they see that? How would we have that hope? Is it just wishful thinking? We hope that's true? Is Paul like, well, just believe it, you know, and then maybe you can fly, you can fly. You know, is it like, we just hope it's true that there's something beyond the grave? Well, no, Paul gives you the reason for our hope in verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Why does the Christian have confidence that life comes after the grave? Because we've seen it. It's interesting, Ricky Gervais, who's uh, a great comedian, came up with the TV show The Office, uh, is also an atheist and Uh, Ricky Gervais came up with a movie years ago where he posited a world where there was no lying. Everyone was completely uh, honest. And yet the movie's called The Invention of Lying because a guy finds he has the ability to lie and he invents lying. And in the movie, the great lie that launches a million lies 
is as he's next to the grave, or excuse me, the hospital bed of his grandmother, she's afraid in the face of death, and so he tells her there's life beyond the grave, just to comfort a scared, dying woman. And that's the great lie that launches a million lies in this movie. And then in the movie, The Invention of Lying, he just sort of mocks everybody who believes there's life beyond the grave because it's just you with your wishful thinking. And he'd be right to mock us if all we had was wishful thinking, right? That's what Paul said last week, right? If there's no resurrection from the dead, we are most to be pitied. We are all wasting our time here. And so this is not based on wishful thinking. This is based on historical precedent. Why do we believe there's life beyond the grave? Because we saw it happen. Because our guy Jesus went to death, he was killed, he was buried, and then he rose and he hung out with people, ate fish, talked to them. He hung out with people and it radically changed the world. And some skeptics will say, well, did he really? Isn't this a story that was made up generations later? No! This letter, 1 Thessalonians, was written within a few years after Jesus' death. Hard to perpetuate a lie about beating death within the lifetime of the guy you're talking about, right? And one of the greatest conundrums for the skeptic about the resurrection of Jesus is the existence of us. That you saw in the ancient world, the Jewish people believed there was one God in heaven and that is it. And if any human being ever suggested that they possessed godhood, you were an enemy. Caesar claimed to be filled with the divine spirit and he put his emblem before the Jewish temple, the Jews revolted in Jerusalem and were ready to die to go to war against a man who dared to claim to be God. And then a carpenter out of Nazareth named Jesus claimed to be God. How's he gonna do? They're willing to fight Caesar claiming to be God and now a carpenter says, oh, I'm God, everybody. They're not gonna buy that (laughs) till he died and didn't stay dead. And they were like, you know what? I think he's got a point here. And um, suddenly in history, you have a group of people who were not expecting something like that, willing to die for the God-man, Jesus Christ. Suddenly you saw a community of Jews ready to give their life for this man. And the Christian church was born and has spread throughout millennia. The skeptic can't explain us. The existence of a people who have hope even in the face of death. Why? Based on wishful thinking? No, on historical reality that changed life back then and has produced a family that spans across the globe now. Our hope lies in the resurrection of that man. He beat death. And if he died and rose, then it says those who are in Jesus that have put their faith in him, we go with him. If he goes down, we go down. And when he rises, we rise too. We have knit ourselves together with him. And you say, well, how can we be sure of that? Okay, Jesus beat death, but how do we know he's not gonna bail? How do we know he's not gonna get to heaven and be like, anyway, see you guys later and take off? Like, how do we know he's actually gonna come get us or that our loved ones have a future? Well, he says in verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. He says, we have confidence, why? Because Jesus told us it's gonna play out like this. You go, where did Jesus tell us that? Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about how bad things are gonna get. He talks about his own impending death and the disciples are pretty bummed about all that. And Jesus starts telling them, that's not the end of all things. 
He says in verse 30 of Matthew 24, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. He says there's going to come a moment where Jesus comes back to get us. He died, he rose, and he says, I am coming soon. And we trust him because before he died, he told us many times, I'm gonna die and not stay dead. You go, that's hard to believe. And then he did it and he was like, I'm coming back to get you. And we said, you know, I'm gonna trust you with that. I really am. Because you seem like you know what you're doing. (laughs) So they said, we have a word from the Lord. If he beat death and rose, he's taken us with him. Not only us, but even those who've passed away, right? And so he says it in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now there's an issue we need to address in this text. If you've been following along, maybe this is a little confusing to you because you go, this is talking about how Jesus will descend and then the dead will ride first. We won't have precedence. They will go before us. What moment is he talking about here? And what you have to realize is Paul, when he's writing these letters, like this letter to the Thessalonians, he's answering a question of theirs. And so the natural thing to ask was, what was the question Paul's answering? And I would posit to you, what this text is not answering is the question, what happens to you when you die? That's not the question Paul's answering to the Thessalonians. Because if that was the question they asked, what happens to you at the moment of death? Where do you go? Where is my mom? Where is my dad? If that's your question, Paul would have answered that question differently and say, well, how do you know that? Because he did answer it differently. You see it in 2 Corinthians 5.8. He says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul talks about this moment of dying. And he says, there's a part of me that when I die is separated from my body. And he says, it's at home with the Lord. And he talks about those like they are simultaneous things. To be departing from my body is to be at home with my Lord. He said it in Philippians 1. In Philippians 1, he was in prison. He thought they might kill him. And so he starts this odd contemplation of whether or not he wants to die. And he says, for me, to live is Christ. To die would be gain, which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. And then he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. And Paul's assumption when he wrote to the Philippians was, at the moment I die, I'm with Christ, and that would be better. So in the instant of death... I separate from the body and I'm at home with the Lord. I depart and I'm with him. You see Jesus talk about it in Luke 16. Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and Lazarus dies. And as Jesus tells the story, Lazarus dies and his spirit is instantly transported into a place where he is interacting with the people who died in faith from generations before. And they're talking about human history that's still playing out in front of them. So they're not in some soul sleep waiting until the last day. They are conscious, aware, conversating, even as history rolls on. You see in Luke 23, Jesus, when he's on the cross, the thief says, remember me when you enter his kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, someday we'll sort all this out. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're both gonna die on these pieces of wood. And today you and I will both be in paradise. 
You see it in Hebrews chapter 12 as he's describing what heaven's like. He says, you come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. As he's describing heaven, he says, God's gonna be there, angels are there, and then the righteous, those who've been made right by God through faith in Jesus. The righteous have now been made perfect. So if you and I were to go up to heaven right now, you'd see them there, right? They'd be there. That's what he's talking about here. You see it in Revelation 6, 9. As John is talking about what he sees in heaven, he says, I saw under the altar souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God. He'd seen martyrs. And he says, they begin to talk to God. This is where it gets a little crazy. It says, and they ask God, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? And they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Okay, so here's where it gets weird. You go, if the goal is to be separate from our body and to float up and be with heaven and with God, why are these people who have done it dissatisfied? It's a weird image. I don't know what you picture in heaven. If we're all happy, we're all hanging out. In this picture of heaven, Revelation, the martyrs are, are unsatisfied. They begin to petition God and say, how long until you avenge us? They say, there's some justice that wasn't done. When are you gonna make things right? They're in heaven and not satisfied. And that's a strange thought. And you go, what's going on with that? And what's interesting is what happens in that moment? Jesus doesn't tell him, dude, relax, you're in heaven. Kick back with your buddies. This cool, man. He doesn't say that. What does it say? It says he told him to rest for just a little while longer. What does that mean? It means that disembodied soulhood is not the end goal. That they've been separated from their bodies. They're up there with him, but they're longing for something else. And God tells him, just hold on. It's coming. See, your goal and my goal is not to just get out of this earth, get out of our body and get up to heaven. That's not how the Bible presents our end. You see it in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul is talking about his body and he says, for we know that in this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened. And so he's talking about physical life. And he says, in the physical world, we groan. This world is broken. And some of you know what that's like. Paul says, we're facing death every day. In this physical tent, we groan because life gets hard. I thought about it the other day, plane ride over here. I'm like, I got to roll up this, you know, jacket and put it behind my back because my lower back gets all tricky on these planes, right? And, uh, and then I was like, man, I was talking to a friend. I'm like, I can't keep looking at you here because it's bulging disc in my neck. So you keep talking and I'm just going to face forward because it hurts too much to look at you on the side. But you're going to have to talk loud because I don't hear so good anymore. And I started saying that to him and I'm like, listen to me. I'm an old man. Like I've been talking to guys lately about all my different physical ailments. And they're like, you know what? You need to start taking fish oil. You need to start taking this. You need to take multiple body. And they start giving me, and I'm like, dude, that's like 47 pills. And then I was like, oh my God. Like I remember the old people that do that. Like every morning they have their little thing and they open it. Like, well, it's Monday. Here's my 47 pills. And I was like, why is that happening? And I'm like, I'm that guy. I've become that guy. No. And you realize getting old sucks. I mean, you're, it's, 
You groaned it. You're like, really? This is the best it's, oh man, I'm on the downhill slide. That's no fun, right? In this tent, we groan. But Paul says, what's the end goal? We just want to get out of this thing. Let me take this earth suit off and get out of here, right? Is that what he says? No. What does he say when he reads it? He says, in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. What is he talking about? What does that even mean? While we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened. We all get that. Not that we would be unclothed, but we'd be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. What Paul is saying is the final goal for us is not disembodied soulhood. He calls that naked. He says, it's not bad up there. They're with God, they're happy, but it's not the end. The end is not the taking off of the earthly. It's the redemption of even the physical world. That's the hope. You see it in Romans chapter eight. It says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await the eager adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's got going on with that? Well, you see in Genesis 1 and 2, God doesn't just create the immaterial world. God's not just creating like wispy clouds and such. God likes dirt. God makes the physical world. And seven times it says it's good. That dirt's good. That tree's good. Food's good. That body's good. God likes the physical world. And in Genesis 3, when we sin, we introduce death into it. And he says, man, even creation was subject to futility. Creation groans right along with us. But creation doesn't groan to be burned up. That's a weird thing to long for. Creation doesn't want to just be destroyed. It says creation's longing along with us, what? For the redemption of our bodies. Because at the very end of things, it's not just that everything physical's burned up and we go up to float around in the clouds. What do we even pray for in the Lord's prayer? Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The longing of heaven and the longing of earth and the longing of us is not just disembodied soulhood, it's the redemption of everything. So is my dad's soul in heaven? Yes. Does that box contain my dad? In a sense, yeah. And what we wait for is the final day when God redeems all of it new body and new soul, new heavens and new earth. That's the hope of Revelation is heaven comes down in Revelation. The final words you get from Jesus, you wanna know what the final red letters are in your Bible? You gotta go all the way to the end of Revelation. And he says, see, I am coming soon. And then we pray, come Lord Jesus. We don't pray, get me out of here. We pray, come, come redeem all of this. Come let your grace flow as far as the curse is found. And the end of Revelation, we don't all go up. Heaven comes down. 
And so you see as Paul is contemplating his impending death in 2 Timothy 4, he says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who love his appearing. He says, the great hope of the New Testament is his appearing, his arrival. When Jesus rends the heavens and comes down and redeems not just our souls, but all of this. That's the great hope of heaven and earth, the redemption of everything. So back to the Thessalonians question. You go, Ben, that was a long side to get to the, what was their question? In the Bible, the great hope of the Christian is to see their king and to see their king make this world right again. Paul calls us those who love his appearing, which just stop on that for a second and go, does that describe you? You ever put that on a resume? Tell me a little about yourself. Well, I got an education here and uh, you know, I do these kind of things and I'm great at Excel and Word documents and I long for his appearing. <laughs> Read the New Testament and I promise you that comes up on almost every page, that we are the people who wanna see our king come and let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're called the ones who love his appearing, right? And so what was happening to the Thessalonians? They thought he was coming quick. And so they were like, we're longing for his appearing. Our king is coming. Jesus is gonna rend the heavens and come down. We're gonna get to be with our king. We're gonna get to celebrate him. And then all of a sudden, like Bill died. And they're like, ah! <laughs> and then Sue died and they're like, ah! Oh! <laughs> We're waiting for the moment he comes down and there's a celebration when he makes things right. What just, uh, are they gonna be there? Because we're talking about this moment that's amazing. We want them to be a part of this moment where we see our king. That's the thing we're waiting for. And what Paul tells them to comfort each other with is the reality that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The comfort Paul gives the Thessalonians is your dead will be there. They'll actually be the first in line. That it's interesting. The great hope of the New Testament was for all of us be together with him as he redeems the world. That's the hope. It makes me think of Lord of the Rings, which I don't know if you've watched or not. It's been a while, but there's a moment at the end of Lord of the Rings where the one true king who had lived in obscurity is now riding forth in victory to finally defeat evil and unite the earth. And as the king rides out in victory, people from the four corners of the earth come to meet him to ride out with the king. And as they're preparing for that moment, far off in the west, a little hobbit is told, you can't go to the battle because you're too small. You know, it's like one of those carnival rides. Like, sorry, you gotta be as tall as this hand. You can't go to the battle at the end of all things with your one true king. And in that moment, he doesn't go, well, you know, what are you gonna do? I'm short, all right? Like, he doesn't do that. The thought of his king riding out in victory and his friends being there, the thought of not being a part of that is unconscionable to him. He's like, no, I'm gonna be there and I'll either ride a horse there or I'm gonna sneak into your knapsack. But either way, I'm getting there because that's the moment all of history has been waiting for. And the Thessalonians are like, we're gonna see our king. We want all our friends there. And Paul's comfort to them is saying, you will be, we will be. They'll be there before you. And we'll all get to see our king ride in in glory. And we'll get to see him come out. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I love this because Paul grabs some imagery they'd all know. And the Greek word that he's grabbing the imagery of, the appearing, is the word parousia. It means he's here. 
para alongside usia, us, the house. He's with us. The longing of the New Testament is the parousia, when, when the king comes. And it, it's a word they would all know because that's the word you would use when a dignitary arrived in a city. So Caesar, you can read ancient documents where Caesar decides to stop by and visit a town. Caesar, who ruled the Roman Empire, if you were part of a town and found out Caesar was coming, you wouldn't go, oh, tell him I said hi. <laughs> when you found out the king of the known world was coming, they would send a messenger to let you know, and you got busy. You scrubbed every wall. You straightened up. You scrubbed all the children. You put them in their best clothes. You would go out to the main road into your city. And if there were any potholes, any low place, you would fill up. If there were any bumps in the road, any high place, you would make low. If the road had gotten crooked, you make it straight for the arrival of your king. And then on the day Caesar was arriving, you wouldn't all just sit in your houses and go, well, someone let me know when he gets here. You would do what you do when an honored guest comes to your home. What happens at your home when you're in the kitchen getting ready because you got a dinner party coming and some distinguished guest rings the doorbell? Do you go, come on, it's open! <laughs> no, what do you do? You go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> Honey, they're here! No, they're here! Okay, <laughs> and you get up to the front door. <sighs> okay, okay. And you open the door, hey, right? And that's the whole thing, right? Because you want to welcome them in to your home. You belong here. And so in the ancient world, they wouldn't just sit in their houses. When the king came, what would they do? They would leave the city and they would line the main road to the city. And as they stood along that road on the side waiting for their king, they would cheer as their king came and then they would lead him into the city. They would do what, what they did to Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem. You remember when he came into Jerusalem, the city was waiting for him along the road and they laid palm branches and said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what happened? As he rode that donkey into Jerusalem, they celebrated him from the sides of the road and they fell in behind him and followed their conquering king. What's interesting is that's the exact same wording Paul uses here. He says, we will ride out to meet him and we will come with him down. What's interesting is he uses the word caught up. It's where we get the the Latin word from which we get the English word rapture. So this is the passage of the Bible that talks about the rapture, which you go, well, wait, where's the dragons? And where's the preacher and poster? It's not in here. So it's not really Paul's concern. What's happening in here is what? When the Lord comes, we will rise to meet him. We'll go out to see our king and we'll lead him right back down to take over. And that's the hope of the Christian. Now, some people go, well, when we rise to meet him, is there a seven-year gap? And then we come back with him? Or do we rise and go back down immediately? I'm not going to get into that with you, okay? Because we got like two minutes left, right? <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, the great hope of the Bible is not just that we get to be with him when we die, although that's a glorious comfort for us, but it's also the fact that then he comes and makes all things right. That grace flows as far as the curse is found that we get to see our king come and we get to unite with our team and we all get to experience the victory of watching our king ride in and take over all of this. And when you understand that, that when this game is over, we can't lose, let me promise you something. That's gonna change the way you play the game now. So when I was in college, I remember we, a uh, group of us were part of this men's organization and we joined a, a paintball tournament uh, that this sorority had put on. And all these different fraternities and men groups were, were in this paintball tournament playing against each other, shooting each other with paintballs to see who would win. And so we were in the tournament, a bunch of young guys, we were like sophomores, and we got in this tournament and we won the first round. 
And as we were progressing in the rounds, we saw some guys had went out and bought like really expensive, high caliber guns. And we're like, oh, geez, come on, man. You know what I mean? Like you're buying your way to the top. It's tacky. And so, you know, we were uh, <laughs> contemplating who our next enemy was going to be. And we went and looked at the bracket to see who was going to get to the final slot. And I remember we were facing off in the championship round with guys that were part of the same organization we were, but they were all seniors. And we're like, well, that's weird. This is going to be awkward. And so I remember we went to talk to them and they came up to us and they were like, hey guys, here's the deal. Uh, we all got girlfriends. So uh, we don't want to be here anymore. This is getting lame. So we're going to go play the game. But no matter what happens out there, y'all are advancing to the championship. And we were like, what? And they're like, you heard us right. We don't want to be here anymore. So we have a life. Like, so regardless of what happens out there, no matter how bad it gets, you can't lose. And some of you might think, well, would that make you not even want to play? Would that make you go, well, why do we even play? Let's just do it. That's not what happens. When you realize you're in the middle of a game where no matter what happens, you can't lose, what happens? You don't duck behind a tree. You don't play the game conservative. You play like you're in a freaking John Woo movie. I mean, you just go running and like leap out, ah, shooting at each other, diving over barricades, tackling guys like, I got one, right? I mean, you go crazy. You play the game the way it's meant to be played with reckless abandon. Why? Because I can play free because I know I can't lose. And when the Christian understands, we win. Jesus was the first fruits of what to come. He died and rose. So when we die, we rise. And then when this earth is over, it will rise and become something new, no matter what happens. And when the diagnosis comes in, you still can't lose. When you get that phone call, you still don't lose. And so that does something in us and it affects the way we play the game. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, one of the greatest evangelists of all time. John Wesley was a minister in the early days of America, got on a boat to ride over from England to minister to America. The only problem was he was not a Christian. Tough to be a good pastor when you're not actually a Christian. And his ministry was terrible. But as he was riding over, he was the chaplain of the ship and a storm hit the ship. And it was bad enough storm, they all thought they were gonna die. So all the people on the boat just freaked out. They're like, we're all gonna die! kind of lost their minds and their chaplain, the spiritual leader, got it right there in with him. John Wesley was like, oh my God, no. And he just completely became an emotional cripple. And everybody freaked out except the Moravians. And the Moravians held hands together and began to sing hymns and they were peaceful and calm and they survived the storm. And John Wesley saw what happened to him when he faced his own death, how terrified he was. And he saw they had a comfort and a confidence that I don't have. And so he came to them and said, uh, I got to know how you did that. And they said, do you know that you'll be with your savior when you die? And he said, I hope so. I think so. He said, that's not good enough. Christ died and rose. And when you put your faith in that, you go with him. And we know death's not the end for us. And so it allowed them to be calm, even in the face of death. That's how the early Christianity spread, our calm and comfort in the face of death. When plagues broke out in ancient cities, people would break out, abandon their wives, children, friends, because they were running from the stench of death. The Christian would stay because they didn't fear death. 
and they would take care of abandoned babies, young, old, their enemies. Even emperors that wanted to extinguish Christianity would marvel saying they care not only for their own sick, but ours as well. And the name of Jesus was honored in the culture and the Roman culture changed because Christians didn't fear death because no matter what happens, we win. And let me tell you something. The Roman empire was much tougher on the people of Jesus than the world is on us right now. And the Christians changed the culture because they didn't fear death. And that radically empowered them to confidently comfort those around them. When you understand where the world is going, it'll change who you are now. And if the people of Jesus will do where this passage ends, encourage each other with these words. If we can breathe this courage into one another, we can change a culture. We can change the world because we know where the world is going. And no matter how bad it gets, we win. And my hope is you know the king who has purchased our rescue. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, I want to thank you that we're not people trying to accrue good works with the hopes that it'll balance out and you'll like us. That is a self-absorbed way to see things and it's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is the whole world is broken, our bodies are broken, and our souls are broken. And Jesus Christ so loved us that he came and entered that brokenness with us. He took on our sin, took on our infirmities, took on our death, and then he beat it. And he beat the greatest of all enemies, the great taker of life, death. And he made death our enemy, now a doorway into life that whoever puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the victor over death has victory. And so Lord, I pray for any in this place who hasn't put their faith in Christ, that even now they could know if I die in him, I rise with him. And at the end of the day, it's all about him. I pray we would link ourselves to the son. And when we know that his victory is our victory, I pray God that would shoot our hearts through with confidence that as we face the financial crisis, the physical crisis, the social crisis, we say, this is bad, but no matter what happens, I win. And that stabilizes me and it encourages me to serve and to love and to sing, even in the hardest of places. May we live with the radical confidence afforded to the people who know the victory of their risen King. Make us different for the sake of the culture. Fill our hearts with hope. Thank you, God, for the victory of our King Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray this in his name, amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hello and welcome to Postscript. My name is Adam McIntyre and I am joined today by Ben Stewart, who just finished part two of his series on death. Ben, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, man. Yeah. We, man, we've got a, a ton of questions to get through, so <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm just going to dive wow. right in. Okay. So, uh, first question uh, is about Lazarus. You, re you referenced Lazarus yep. in your sermon and reference how he ha was in a state of consciousness mm -hmm. after death. He was aware of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so this question, wa this person wants to know, where was he exactly? Was he in a ghostly state? 
Um, and uh, was he able to see and hear everything that's going on? Which leads into a second question. Can our loved ones who are in heaven yeah. now see what's going on in earth? Yeah, well, I would say uh, there's two Lazaruses mentioned in the Bible. There's the one Jesus raised from the dead. Sure. We mentioned that his story last week. Right. And then um, this Lazarus I mentioned is in Luke 16. It's a, <clears throat> a parable Jesus tells about a poor man named Lazarus who dies at the doorstep of a rich man. And then the rich man also dies. And then as Jesus unpacks the story, Lazarus goes to a place uh, in the afterlife where he sees Abraham from the Old Testament and right. converses with him. And so he's aware, comfortable. He doesn't really describe that space, but so I, he's not a ghost, you know, running around in his old house. Right. You know, he's right. up with these people. And then the rich man is in Hades is what Jesus says. He's in a place of torment. Right. Uh, instantly, they're both there and a great chasm separates the two, mm -hmm. Jesus says. So they're both in these states, one in comfort, one in great discomfort. Right. And that's the basis of Jesus' story is this guy wants a chance to, to leave, go warn other people. Right. And Jesus' whole story is you die once and then there's judgment. Now, it's part of a story. So can you take every part of it and say that's exactly how it'll play out? It's hard to know if Jesus was just trying to make the point you only die once or if each part of that is this is exactly how it plays out. Sure. I think it's probably um, wise or, or, or fair to say he, he's probably presenting things accurately as they are, that um, there is a place they go. And as you look at Paul, you go, that place is not just with Abraham, it's with God. I mean, right. it's in the presence of God. That's where Lazarus is. So he's not floating around the earth. Um, it's different than being in a fully physical form, but what does that look like or mean? The Bible doesn't fully unpack that. Right. Um, can they see what's transpiring on earth? It's not clear in that passage. Sure. Um, they're aware of history as it rolls on because right. the, the rich man is asking about, can I go see my brothers? Can I do whatever? Right. And God tells him no. Um, mm -hmm. But um, so is there a level of awareness? You can't say that definitively. Sure. I guess so. I would kind yeah. of maybe lean towards I guess so based on Revelation. There's even in heaven, there's a consciousness of what's happening in other places. Right. But I don't know if I can be definitive on that. Sure. And I think with the subject of death, we're going to have to get comfortable with there being a certain amount of mystery. Yeah. <laughs> and we yeah. can't, we can't know everything. There's aspects God really wants to hammer. And the right. biggest one is what have you done with the Lord Jesus Christ? Because right. at the end of the day, it's all about him. And even in this passage, it's those who die in Christ will rise with Christ. Mm -hmm. And our great hope is seeing Christ. I mean, so all of it is about Christ. And so it, these are good questions, but it's, it's important to not lose sight of, of the main thing. Absolutely. And so uh, another person wrote in and they wrote about the Hebrew concept of Sheol, the grave. Yeah. And they wanted to know how does a Christian, um, someone who's in Christ, uh, deal with this ancient Hebrew concept of Sheol? Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, revelation, uh, like revealing understanding of how the universe works rolled out over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I don't think there, there was mystery in the Old Testament of what exactly is happening after death. And so a belief in something positive happening begins to, you, you begin to see it in David. I don't think I'm going to be abandoned to right. decay, you know, right. when his son dies. I think I'm going to go be where he is. And, and then you even see in Jesus's day when he's alive, they're even talking about the resurrection at the last day. And yeah. so this was in Hebrew thought, but there was ambiguity for them about yeah. 
what happens beyond the grave. And so um, it's not inconsistent with the New Testament, but um, it's dimly lit in the old. Right. And the wattage turns up in the new that we we see and know more about it. Right. Uh, would be a, a really short answer to that question. No, that's good. They just that just wasn't something that they were concerned it's as much question. with. It is. Yeah. 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 Uh, so another person wanted to. Uh, they had a question about cremation. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, your father was cremated, and um, cremation's been on the rise. Yep. Uh, and they want to know: Is it biblically acceptable to be cremated? Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, John Piper did a longer like article and video on this that I thought was good. Um, the short view, which, which is the same as my own is if you're getting cremated because of the cost, that's, that's sort of a bummer. I mean, historically, uh, Christians have been buried because of the imagery in the Bible of, of being going to sleep and then your body rising and, and resurrected. Uh, and so that's where historically Christians have wanted to do that. Um, and, uh, but is it wrong to be cremated? There's nothing that says that it's, it, cremation is not a historically Christian idea, but it's not like, and then you'll be in trouble if you do it. Like it's, it's okay. It's not ultimately determinative of what happens when you die. What's determinative, what have you done with Jesus? So, um, you know, so my dad wanted to be cremated. So I, I said, I want to respect that. That's why we did that. But it wasn't. Um, you know, I, I probably would have, if it was left at a zero, I probably would have buried him, but, sure. but I don't think you've sinned either way. No, and I think people worry sometimes w- with the idea of resurrection of the body, yeah. um, with creation that we, we might mess that up in some kind of yeah. way, but, uh, a guy can redeem and restore yeah. anything and everything. And so I don't, I don't think that should be a stumbling block. And he will. I mean, people decay, compose right. their bodies. So this recomposition, whatever's going to happen at the end, is a pretty radical moment. Right. And, uh, and God's okay with a lot of mystery around it. Yeah, absolutely. And so here's another question that I think a lot of people, whether they admit it out loud, they, they wonder about this. Um, mm-hmm. What does the Bible say about our animals um, yeah. go, going to heaven? <laughs> Dogs, yes. Cats, no. <laughs> Next question. My wife. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean... In the eternal state in Revelation, we have a meal right. and we eat food sure. and there's animals involved in that too. So is there an animal presence? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so does that mean your dog will be there with you? I don't know. I mean, historically people would say no because animals don't have souls, but that's because they were trying to say the uniqueness of human is our presence of souls, but that. I don't think that's necessary to understand what image of God means. So does your dog have an immaterial being? Sure. The Bible's not particularly concerned with that. Um, But, uh, you know, so they eat fish and it's not like, don't do it. You know, like uh, (laughs) Jesus had fish and was fine. So um, the the short answer is I would guess so. Sure. But I don't know for sure. Because right. that's not the Bible's main concern. Right. Again, another mystery that yeah. we just have to be okay yeah. with not Sorry. knowing. That's yeah. the theme. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, okay, and so um, the subject of the rapture and of second coming, tribulation, 
all that fun stuff. The, we had quite a few questions Let's come in. Yeah, you just want to go through it? Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't think we have time for that. Uh, <laughs> but um, I would like for you to address maybe some helpful resources that you could point people to that yeah. could help them understand this topic a little more. Yeah, so, I mean, the passage we read, First Thessalonians, is where you get the word rapture. Right. It means caught up in the air with him. And so, and then Jesus, you know, in his discourses towards the end of his life talked about a time of great tribulation. And so people wonder, does the Christian rapture, do we exit? And then there's a season of great tribulation and then God comes and restores the earth. Or do we have a great season of tribulation? Then we rise and meet him and come down immediately. Or is there some other, ver there's a couple other versions. Um, and people debate it and, and it's, uh, it is maybe broader than the scope we want to get into here. There's some great books, and I don't have the name of them right now, but they're typically called like Four Views, mm -hmm. Three Views, things like that. So there's like Four Views on the Millennium, and uh, I believe Three Views on the Rapture. And the reason why I'd recommend those books is because the way the editors did it is they got a, a solid, bona fide scholar that truly believes each view right. to speak his view, and then each other writer gets to speak their view. Right. And then they each get a few pages to comment on the other person's view. And so these are great books to read. Four sure. Views on the Rapture, Three Views on the Millennial, those sorts of things. Because you'll get to see people presenting the view they actually believe. Right. And all of them interacting with everyone else's idea. And then you can make up your mind which one you think is the most faithful to the text. That's what was helpful to me. So I could recommend you books that present what I believe. Um, but I think... If um, you read these, you'll get a spance of everybody and then hopefully arrive where I have. So. Right. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my view. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's helpful. Yeah. They get a bunch of different perspectives. So you're not just being indoctrinated with one view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah. That's helpful. And so another question that came up, um, they talked about how uh, in, the, in Scripture it says um, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. We never know when. Um, and... In the Bible, it seems like they were ready for him then. Like they thought it could be tomorrow. They could be yes. right then. Right. Uh, like the end times that they were talking about was right then. Yep. But it's been 2,000 years and right. still nothing. Mm. Um, and so his question was, how do we, uh, will people be saying the same things that we're saying now in another 2,000 years? Like, well, um, basically he says, the more time that passes, will it be harder to stand firm uh, that he is indeed coming? Or will we start to lose Hope. Yeah, some people may lose it. I mean, the Bible even talks about that. Some sure. people's love will grow cold. Some people will say, well, each day rolls on like the next. Right. But the Bible's not all that concerned about that, too. I mean, Jesus, when he talked about days will get difficult, I mean, he's talking about earthquakes, wars, all this stuff you typically hear about in the end times. And he goes, this is just the beginning of birth pangs. Yeah. So he's like, all that stuff you see assigned to the end, he goes, oh, that's like barely the beginning of the end. Right. And you go, what does that mean? And at the end of the day, what it means is things, things are going to get worse before they get better. Mm -hmm. But the timing, Jesus was real clear. I'm not going to tell you, right. and you don't know. And so anyone who says he knows doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. And so there was a sense of expectation, but there wasn't disappointment. Like when Paul realized, you know, when he wrote the Thessalonians, he was like, we who are alive will be caught up. He kind of thought he'd be in that. Sure. But towards the end of his life, he says, I'm about to depart and be with Christ, and that's better. Sure. So he wasn't real shaken by that. Right. In 2 Peter 3, you know, Peter mentions that 
he'll come like a thief in the night passage. But if you look just a few verses above, that's where Peter says he's not slow, as some count slowness. A day for the Lord is like a thousand years. But he is patient with us, wanting everyone to come to repentance. And so Peter's argument was when people say, oh, he's slow because none of this is really real or God's not really going to do it. Peter's like, no, he's being patient because if you don't know Christ, you want the clock to keep running right. um, because that gives you more of a chance. That's right. And so his patience is based on his grace, right. not slowness, not anything else. It's kindness. Right. And so when we see a slowness, we're supposed to see opportunity. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the Israelites when waiting for the Messiah. They went hundreds and hundreds of years without hearing a word. Yeah. No prophets, no nothing. Uh, yeah. Radio silence from God. And then Jesus showed up and you know, changed yeah. the course of human history. I mean, Noah's dad thought he had the guy. And you're like, dude, you're not even, right. we're not that deep into this book, bro. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, so yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Again, we have history. precedent. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, so final question. Um, in your sermon, you mentioned how uh, an argument that um, you said skeptics cannot explain the community of believers that we have now as a result of the resurrection right. of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, this person says, what about a, a person that could counter that argument and say that there's communities of believers that exist in other religions yeah. as well? Like Christianity isn't necessarily unique in that. Yeah, and maybe I didn't explain it very clearly because I felt like I was going fast through that. But my point in that was what is unique about Christianity is our basis, our foundation is not uh, the teachings of our leader. You know, uh, it's not it's not a a pathway uh, to get to heaven. It's not a set of of pillars that we must uphold. Our basis was from last week a historical event, the death of Jesus and the physical resurrection of Jesus. So, you know, we can debate the veracity of a a list of teachings, but a historical event either happened or it didn't, you know? So that's where you're like, for a community of people in those same days to say, no, that event happened and I'm willing to die for that. That's different than saying, I really believe these teachings. You know, so that's where the Christian is unique is we're not saying we really believe the teachings of Jesus. We think they're really upbeat and helpful. We go, no, we really believe he died and beat death. And, and so our hope of dying and beating death is built on that historical fact, right. not just the words of Jesus. And right. that's where we're unique and different. So right. that's how I'd respond to that. I'm going, yeah, there's a lot of belief systems that have large communities that believe them. Right. Where we're different is that community started instantly it grew rapidly and it was built on an event that was provable or disprovable in that moment, that this guy's no longer in that grave. Right. And uh, that's why we're unique. Right, that's why you reference Paul. Uh, he wrote his letter within the lifetime of so many eyewitnesses who knew yeah. Jesus, talked to him, lived life with him. And it would have been so easy if you had written those letters as a scam or a lie for people to be like, no, 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 that's not true. That's yeah. completely false. I mean, he said it last week in the passage last week. Uh, he said, go, t- go talk to him. Right. You know, exactly. he's like many of whom are still alive. He's right. saying like, you can go talk to these guys. Absolutely. You know, uh, Paul said it when he was on trial. He said, this has not been done in a corner. Right. Yeah, <laughs> he said, exactly. this, is, this happened in front of all you guys. Right. And uh, so it's, it's an event and that's different. Absolutely. Well, Ben, thank you so much sure, man. for thank being you. here with us. And thank you all for tuning in. We will see you all next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. 
Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.